0: Hi, I'm Kane Jackson and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for our future if only a few of us can afford to live there? On today's episode, we're bringing you a panel from South by Southwest Sydney that some people reviewed as the highlight of the festival. The name of the panel is Finance Industry Emergency, A Threat to Our Future. You'll hear from myself and three incredible panellists, including Dr. J.P. Monk, an academic, accountant, lawyer and former bank CEO, Lacey Filipich, a financial educator and the founder of Money School, and Professor Nick McWiggin, a professor of accounting at both Monash University and Rostock University in Germany, who is also the director of equity, access and social inclusion at the Monash University School of Business.
1: In the past 40 years, the finance industry has tripled in size. It's now the largest industry on earth and accounts for 25% of GDP. It grew in size by 9.9% last year. This year, it will make a profit of $3.4 trillion, more than the GDP of Italy. So that profit is equal to $450 for every human alive, despite half the world's population living on less than $5 a day. Lord Adair Turner, formerly the UK's top financial regulator, said, there's no evidence that the growth of the finance industry has grown the broader economy or increased stability. Rather, evidence suggests that it extracts rent from the economy to fuel its own growth. Pretty grim coming from a former regulator. So today I'm joined by Lacey Filipich, Kane Jackson, and Professor Nick McGuigan to discuss a finance industry emergency that threatens our future. We'll talk about why the finance industry is unique, why it's damaging, and what the solutions might look like in service of the question, what's the point of fixing climate for our future if only a few of us can afford to live here? Originally, one of the, the proposed titles of this was The Future of Finance is EFT, uh, which I quite liked, but yeah, the organisers thought that we could frame that a little bit more astutely. I'll be moderating and speaking a bit today, so who the heck am I? I'm John Paul or JP Monk, you can call me whatever you want as long as it's not too derogatory. I moonlight as an academic at the University of Sydney, University of New South Wales, and Macquarie University on finance, banking, economics, and most of the other boring stuff. So I'm a, an accountant in public practice and also a public practice lawyer, and in my day job, Uh, I'm the Chief Risk Officer and General Counsel for a digital bank that just launched a bit earlier this year. But I'm joined by people far more interesting and qualified than myself. We'll start with Lacey. Just give us a quick intro from your perspective.
2: Thank you, JP. You're putting yourself down too far there. We're very lucky to have JP who covers all of the areas and that's why he got stuck moderating. (laughs) My name's Lacey Filippich, as you've heard. I'm a chemical engineer who's turned into a financial educator. And if that sounds odd, I won't labour it, but basically I uh, had a crisis in my 20s and thank goodness I had been saving half of every dollar since I was 10 investing since I was 19 and on my way to financial independence when that happened and when I started taking breaks from work my friends all went how come you get to not work for six months and I was like "Well, what have you been doing and they'd all been getting credit cards and personal loans and car loans and I was like oh No one had the talks with you. I was just lucky, the ovarian lottery. My mum taught me about money. And so I've been running money school where I teach people how to save and invest and get to a better financial future for 13 years now. And I have a book out with Penguin in case you want to read more about that. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Lacey. My name is Kane Jackson. I am the co-founder of a social impact fintech called Maslow. We're trying to rebuild the model of financial services, the business model that underpins that. My background, I'm a qualified paramedic. So it's been said that I bring a healthcare perspective to finance. My co-founder is also a paramedic. We got sick of seeing the effects of wealth inequality on road and estimate that about 50% of the patients that we attended were experiencing issues that Probably wouldn't have been medical issues if they were part of a fairer economic system. So we're pretty determined to uh, bring one about at Maslow, and it's all about removing conflict from the way financial services are sold and provide them as a service for a flat fee.
3: Hey everyone, I'm um, Nick McGuigan, I'm an accountant, I apologise. I know it doesn't look like it, but I am. I'm a Professor of Accounting at Monash University here in Australia and also a Professor of Accounting at Rostock University in Germany, so I work across both continents. I'm also the Director of Equity, Diversity and Social Inclusion for the Business School at Monash, so I look after that portfolio too. I'm very interested in the future of accounting and how we can be a little bit more accountable and how that accounting system fundamentally needs to change. So I work a lot with artists to try to reimagine what that might look like. So if anyone's interested from an art angle, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Thanks.
1: All right, great stuff. So we've got a fairly interesting sort of panel. If we can uh, have a round of applause to cheer them on to start off with. Thanks, everyone. And by way of audience, have we got Fen Review in the house? (laughs) Australian Bankers Association. Oh, shame. All right. Well, we're all amongst friends, but uh, anyone here from finance? Uh, so banking, all right, quite a bit. Good. Insurers, all oh, right, got one, good. Wealth management, investment and whatnot. Cool, so yeah, a bit of a mixed bag. And anyone who's been terrorized by any or all of these industries? <laughs> yeah, okay, sounds good. So we're gonna have an interesting chat. I've got a few different questions to start off with, but first and foremost, I'll pick on Kane. So why do you think
0: the finance industry is so unique? The finance industry is unique for a number of reasons. One of them is probably the primary reason. It's the only industry in the world that sells the very same thing that shareholders want. So when you buy a financial product, it is money. You measure its impact, its value on your life in monetary terms, and funnily enough, that's how shareholders measure the benefit of the companies they invest in. So you've got this conflict between the customer interests and the shareholder interests, And that doesn't exist in any other industry. The product is money, and the return we have to pay to shareholders is money itself. And that really blows out the issues of fiduciary duties. There's also the fact that the industry, it's not just an industry. It's also the access point to a system that we are all forced to use. If we want to participate in the global economy, we have to use the finance industry to do that. And we have this industry that has this conflict with the majority of its users. 78% of humanity use a financial product and it's owned by about 5% of us. So we have this extractive industry that basically takes money from all of us and ships it to a few people through this model wrought with conflict. And that conflict's particularly damaging in financial services because of the fact that shareholders and customers both, both want the exact same thing. Cool, thank you. It's a pretty grim uh, thing to kick us off with. But but just to, to pick on that a bit more,
1: what about uh, the issue of, of power imbalance between those who are building, structuring, designing products and then you know, those who consume them?
0: Yeah, so when you appraise... Uh buying coffee or buying a car or buying a pair of shoes, you can generally take a look at what you're getting and and understand um, whether it works for you, whether it's good value for money. The issue with uh, financial products is they're a part of an industry that markets that they're all very different. um, And they are if you look at the 80 page product disclosure statement, but nobody does. And that's an issue because the people creating the product people who have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders have an obligation to maximise returns. Now, they can only do that because of the conflict by taking the benefit from the customer. One side of that equation has to lose. The power imbalance is a problem because you've got people who understand the complexities of these products. They have um, a vested interest in undermining or carving out the benefit for the end user, and their tool for doing that is a document that you don't read. And that's why it's such a problem. I know people in this space that... Lawyers like yourself, I think we've had discussions, you don't read the PDS. If I really have to. <laughs> yeah, so that, that power imbalance is a big problem because the tool for doing it is that document that no one reads. Yeah, fair call. So with that, whilst we'll try not to jump to the assumption
1: that someone sits in a cold dark room thinking about how to screw over society, hopefully it's not the case, what are the, some of the ways to, to combat that or defend that? So I might just flick to Lacey, in terms of financial education, how does that go about trying to solve that problem?
2: So first I'll comment a little bit, I think, on what Kane said. So you could read that as it's intentional. I think the major problem is structural. And as an engineer, I think in terms of risk, and I'm sorry, finance industry, you're not as good at risk as engineers are. And unfortunately, you don't follow the hierarchy of control, which is the most preferable forms of reducing risk are to eliminate it, substitute it or engineer around it. You use substandard control measures which are administrative, PDSs, commissions, we agree we're not going to do the wrong thing by the customer. We make an, a commitment, I will do the right thing. But unfortunately, it's a systemic flaw. And we get taught as engineers, if there's a human choice involved, it will fail eventually. And we saw that in the Banking Royal Commission, right? We've seen the evidence. It's not one bad Apple kind of thing. It is a systemic poor design. So I think we've got a problem with design to fix that. Now, as a financial educator, you'd think I'd be like, we need to teach everybody to save, right? Like, I've been doing this for 13 years. And you think about that Dunning-Kruger curve, right? Confidence versus competence. And you have the peak of Mount Stupid. I feel like it took me about eight or nine years to get to the peak of Mount Stupid. And that was, we just teach everybody and it's all personal responsibility. And then you come across this fantastic research by Princeton University in 2013 called Poverty Brain. And that is, whenever someone is under financial stress, their IQ drops by 13 points. If you want people to make good choices, you can't expect them to do it when they're financially stressed. So while I think financial education is important, we can't get around it, there is some personal responsibility. The further I've gotten along that Dunning-Kruger curve, the more I've come to the conclusion that the solutions have to be systemic and if I could wave a magic wand, I'd abolish commissions.
1: Interesting. We'll come back to that one because that's... Highly controversial,
2: which is great. Nick, so
3: why have the accountants solved this one yet? Um. Uh, we're <laughs> <clears throat> well, interesting. We're trying to. In accounting, I think we have a saviour model, which is really concerning. So accountants can save the world. You might have heard the Jane Gleeson White style of coming from double entry that we can save the world. And I think we actually need to step away from the world a little bit. We have a language that drives profit maximisation. We used to talk about stewardship that's been gone for quite some time. And so I want to come back to Lacey's point around the systemic change. There are so many forces that will push humanity towards that systemic change. And we need the design principles to redesign economy that's built on unlimited growth. That was great because when we designed that global economy, we had the knowledge that we could grow forever. Science has counteracted that, and that's, I think, very clear. We need to rethink what an economy looks like. We need to rethink what the finance system looks like, and we need to rethink what the language that builds those look like, which is the accounting stuff. So I've been very big in accounting to think about how do we shift the language of accounting to be more accountable, because it will change businesses' behavior. They're accountable for finance, and they're accountable to investors. That's the only stakeholder they're accountable for. We've got a global power because no one in accounting looks like me, usually. They look a little bit, sorry JP, they look a little bit more like this. I was going for the lawyer look, but anyway. In the fact that you trust this and you're not, I mean, you're afraid of this for sure and there's a fear associated with that uniform, but you still trust it because it's professional. And it's, I say that because we're very conservative and we operate on a, let's just keep on the down low, but actually our power is really high. So we've seen now the International Accounting Standards Board merge with the International Sustainable Standards Board to try to get that parity between financial and non-financial information. Yeah, And when you can really truly bring those two things together and integrate them, then you've got some powerful data or powerful information to be changing behavior and making really appropriate, holistic decisions. Unfortunately, the Sustainable Standards Board is making the investor the number one drive. So they're just taking all of the accounting stuff, the principles, everything it's been built on, and transferring it to sustainability. I see that as really dangerous, and we need to break that power hold. And that's where I think artists with accountants doing some kind of activism on street level is a way to hold accountability to those powerful bodies.
1: Great. That's a pretty good opening salvo to to unpack this a bit more. So thank you. So before we do that, we'll put the boot into the industry a little bit more. So... It's not just an industry. The view that it actually bridges every part of the economy to itself, it connects households and businesses, it also banks the government and facilitates international trade and finance. So those all sound like pretty good things in terms of enabling the ability for people and firms to do better for themselves and therefore each other and the global economy to just magically work out well for
0: everyone. So why not? Anyone want to go first? So in Australia, we have an understanding that if you're unwell, you can walk into a hospital and get treated. doesn't matter how much money you've got. We accept that. Some people would argue that's socialism. I probably wouldn't. I'd say that's a basic human right. One of the things that we don't want to talk about is that financial wellness is the foundation to all wellness in a modern age. If we don't have financial wellness, we don't have health, we don't have a proactive lifestyle, we don't have happiness, we don't have the things that we must get first from having solid financial wellness. And we have an industry that charges those who have the least, the most, to access it. That would be like walking into a hospital and saying, no, sorry, you can't get treatment because you have no money. Now, no one wants to talk about that, and yet we've overlaid that industry over the world's largest system. So it is this on-ramp to this economy, and it is overlaid by pay-to-play, and if you can't afford it, well, we'll charge you more. And the effect on you? Mm, we don't really care. But if we look at most of the people that experience life on pretty much the sub-50% line of average, financial wellness is hard, it's stressful, and it, it defines everything. And I talk about preventative health care policy because that's my background. And we talk about in preventative health care being proactive. If you are proactive with your health and you get a sore ankle or you get a cough, you can go to the doctor and get it checked. But if you can't afford to do that, if you can't afford to get into a GP and you can't find a bulk bill or you can't get a taxi to the doctor to get that thing looked at before it evolves into something else, you have a problem. And we have this industry that essentially doesn't allow us to have this preventative approach to our our financial wellness. And I think that's something we need to have a chat about if we're going to talk about overlaying an industry over the world's largest system or to maybe separate them somewhat.
1: All right, thank you. Well, I'll put my uh, bank GC hat on for a minute and say, but Lacey, I I gave the customer uh, a comparison tool. So surely I've done my job.
2: Um... (laughs) What a kind man you are to give them a comparison tool. Who's used an online comparison tool like the one with the meerkat, right? Okay, so there are comparison tools that are sales funnels and there are genuine comparison tools. And unfortunately, the ones that do the best SEO are the former. And unfortunately... It's not always easy to decipher. That's why we have privatehealth.gov.au. The government stepped in. That's why we now have your super from the government so that there is this no commercial branding, no vested interest attempt to allow people to compare. Now, financial stuff is inherently scary for some people because they think it's about maths. If you got through year five maths, you're good with most money. But people see that and they just freak out and they won't take the time or the energy because they're so worried. They won't ask the questions because it is a fairly big taboo to talk about money. Still, I wish it weren't. I wish it was like it was at my house where we asked, how much does that person earn and how much did that cost and how do you pay for that and where does this work? So the, the thing I come back to is the difference between equality and equity. I really feel like we struggle with that in finance and I think we struggle with it as a society. I think we are much more geared towards equality than equity And equality being this idea that you all get treated the same. And equity being we need to lift you up to the same level before we give you the same access. And I think that's the hard bit with anything to do with finance, including giving you a PDS, including giving you a comparison tool. There's assumed knowledge. There's assumed decision-making capacity. And what if you're one of those people that's got that 13-point IQ thing? You still, even with all the best intentions in the world, won't make as good a decision as you would have if you weren't in financial stress
0: and you will make a decision based on the end price and probably nothing else. And we know that the industry has an incentive to undermine the outcome by making it cheaper, by carving things out. And so you end up with that product, all from that confusion, because you didn't know how to compare. All right. Well, one of my favourite
1: economists uh, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and uh, in the early 90s, he did some really uh, cringeworthy videos uh, where he was uh, sprooking the uh, the wisdom of uh, Milton Friedman uh, in terms of uh, exactly that kind of argument, that, uh, which is the, the opposite, to suggest that rather than obsessing about everyone finishing at the finish line at the same time, just make sure they, they start from the start line at the same time. And you get, OK, interesting visual, but what are some of the problems with that in terms of that starting point? And is that really perceived or Understood to be in the same way.
2: I think the fascinating thing, like who considers themselves a capitalist? I am a capitalist. It would be cheaper for all of us in the long run if we didn't have people in poverty. Like, on a logical sense, if you were just looking at the numbers, you'd lift everybody out of poverty because they'd have fewer healthcare issues, they'd need less Centrelink support, they'd be more productive members of society. It, it logically, <laughs> it's a no-brainer. So it's not about logic and that kind of thing. There's so much emotion wrapped up in this and this sense of if I give to you, you're going to lose instead of let's grow the pie together. Look, I'm going to say it. The no vote's an example of that. This failure to understand that what is best for all of us means that some people have to have a bit of an advantage because they're so far behind. But it's this human emotion. It's not logic. And that's been very hard to learn as an engineer because we're not known for our emotions. But basically... That is the problem, is this conflict between human survival, basic our prehistoric software and hardware, and trying to make these rational decisions when we know that emotion overlies them. So I know that's a very general answer, but that's how I think about the conflict with this stuff. Fair. Kate or Nick?
0: Most people understand that the government has an obligation to provide welfare for people in our society who need Now, Australian government provides social welfare to about 3 million people. If you think about who those people are, characteristically they're also the people that the finance industry charges the most to access some really crappy products. They're the people we target payday loans to, 20% annual recurring rates of, of interest. These are the people that we say, hey, We're going to throw all these horrible products at you that mean you can't pay for the things that you need with the very little money that we give you from the government to do that. And then the government wonders why people say, hey, we haven't got enough money. On one side, we've got this understanding that we need to support these people, and yet we're completely okay with an industry that's targeting them with these products that take them backwards. And so you've got these two... Sorry. Do you mean that I'm not a nice guy if someone comes to me and says, someone's going
1: to break my kneecaps if you don't give me $1,000? And I say... Okay, I'll give it to you at 500% interest and pay me back next month. Is that cool?
0: You're a saint. Well, thank you. (laughs) It's the
3: suit. (laughs) (laughs) But on that... Sorry, Nick, you go. Can I just make a comment? And I understand I'm saying this in Sydney, so it's a brave thing probably to say. I think we need to have deeper and bigger conversations around enough. What constitutes Enough. I agree. I think bringing people out of poverty obviously is important, and I know this is going to sound really controversial, but can we? Can we globally, can we bring everyone out of poverty? Because what worries me a lot is more of these systemic issues. So if you look at the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, they're not achievable with our current planet of resources. Physically, it's an impossibility even though we're all striving to achieve the 17 development goals. They contradict each other and they don't work in, co- in complementary ways. And as a design system, we as humans will have to make really difficult decisions systemically to, to achieve these. So I'm really questioning, obviously, if you're bringing people out of poverty, you're increasing consumption. We as a general human species have to have a conversation around consumption and enough. And I believe strongly that my profession is driving higher consumption. The finance industry drives higher consumption. There's a point where it has to stop because the end point to this is our extinction.
1: Yeah, right, which is pretty depressing stuff.
3: Of, co- of course, sorry. <laughs> I said, it's a great way to kick us off. On the day.
1: But
0: uh, no, thank you, Nick, and that's where I wanted to go next. So, okay. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Thanks for mentioning the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We believe that of the 17, 10 are. Uh, prevented by wealth inequality, unless we solve wealth inequality or start reversing it. It's on a pretty bad track at the moment. Wealth inequality is at unprecedented scale and I believe wealth inequality is affecting everything from the political discourse to our extreme polarised views, why we all want to hate people before we want to talk to them and get to know them. I think that comes from these pressures that are inflationary, they're wealth inequality-based. Everything's harder. It's harder to save for a holiday this year than it was last year. And that is being felt by society across the entire economic plane. And if we have a look at this industry, financial services, it is the biggest contributor to wealth inequality because it is the only system that everyone has to use if they want to access the economy. It extracts from 78% for 5% and we're doing it through a a positive feedback loop of decay. So the products get worse and worse as companies each year are forced to pursue more profit and their tool to do that is to carve out the products.
2: So I, I think Nick's point's really important. And by definition, in Australia, where our poverty line is 50% of the median income. So the thing about a poverty line, if you calculate it that way, is you always have one. <laughs> it's just an X percent. So by definition, there will always be a poverty line, right? So I get what you're saying. But my point would be you have to try. And the consumption stuff you're talking about is a fraction of the population. Uh, the consumption is a problem at the top 10%, and we are almost all in that. So I agree with you at that point, absolutely. But I think it's still an achievable goal to redistribute from that end to that end, to at least get them all to a basic living standard. The questions of how much can this earth sustain is a diff- thats a science question. So I wouldn't—I don't have the answer to if there's a numerical limit for how many people we can sustain out of property. But I'd like to think technology allows us to get there, and I, I would aim for it, regardless of whether we can get there or not.
3: One hundred percent, but they're integrated and we don't have those integrated conversations. We talk about the science, we talk about the finance, we talk about the accounting. We don't talk about that as an integrated systemic whole. Part of the problem is, and I know this because obviously I'm a professor working in higher education, we don't educate that way either. We educate in silos. So you all come out of your degrees with a really shit education. And I can say it because it's not being recorded, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Actually. (laughs) Pretty sure. But we need to move to complex, systemic, problem-solution-driven styles of education, which bring these different things together, so that you're working in interdisciplinary ways, so that you're more able to have those conversations when you leave, and I think that's part of our problem. We still think as humans in silos, because it's easier.
2: Can I ask your opinion? Sorry, I know you're the MC, but I'll ask. Go for it. The problem you're describing is a similar thing with engineering where we're taught to break a hole down into its component parts. So you get analytical, you find the biggest lever at the bottom that you think is going to change your output and you work on that. This is the opposite of systems thinking, which is about synthesis from the bottom up and understanding the big picture. Now, my understanding is accounting is that probably like engineers, very analytical like to get to that point. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah.
1: yeah. All right, well, that's... On the way to solutions, which is good, otherwise we'd send everyone an existential depressive slip into solipsism, which would be a very terrible outcome. Who here's has eaten bread out of a dumpster? All right, one gentleman. I can say that I have. I know I don't look like it. And now, it wasn't that bad. I used to work in Nightville. I saw the bakery guy throw it out there, and I was like, well, it's still clean. It's at the top, like George Costanza. So why I say that is there's a difference between wealth inequality and income inequality. And I think one of the first steps to bridging that gap is most likely to first solve the income issue in terms of being able to feed yourself, not out of the trash, and then slowly work on other bits above and beyond that. And you've also got an issue where the wealth inequality goes back thousands of years since the birth of banking or accounting and other industries that preceded it, which I won't go into. Now, that issue is that it's not your fault if you were born with a lot of wealth and your strategies for preserving it, for growing it, will be very different from someone who has pretty much nothing and is trying to start from scratch. Yet, as anyone in Sydney can attest to, the prospect of ever owning a house if you haven't had one and your family doesn't have one to pass down is looking pretty grim. So how do we deal with that wealth inequality issue and is solving for income one of the steps to getting there?
0: I don't know if anyone
1: wants to step up first.
0: Thinking about systems change, if the largest system we use is built to extract from all of us, we're already at a disadvantage. So there are a whole swathe of things that go into wealth inequality education being one of them intergenerational wealth mobility all these sorts of things but we all use this one system and it is it's intention its its interest is to pull money out of our lives and make our lives harder the health system's not like that so why is it this larger system that we all use is like that? Unless we – if we talk about systems and from the ground up or you talk about the largest lever that we could pull, that's a pretty big lever and we're not talking about pulling it because it's a pretty profitable industry. It's the most profitable industry. Sure. Does education help, Lacey? I see you but, itching to.
2: I'm not going to tell you not to learn about money. Not that I have a vested interest. Of course – so the way I think of it is this – you have to play the hand you're dealt the best you can so there's personal responsibility in that but the best time and energy if we have limited resources is spent on systemic change right so i started out teaching people the personal responsibility line and now I just don't use that anymore. I don't think that's fair for most people. And I think the problem with it is it's hard to understand the difference that some of the hampering happens. I'll give you an example based on gender because it's the best data we have. Women are 50% of the population. We have a gender pay gap, all that kind of stuff. Everyone looks at that gender pay gap and they go, well, it's 13% for full-time workers. It's 22% for everyone else. So They think it's proportional, but it's not because of that minimum standard of living that the income inequality solves right so being able to get to i can cover my living costs i can put food in my belly i can put clothes on my back and i can get around right so you have to get to that point first and when you look at that's a certain amount and it, we have a volva tax but we don't get a volva discount on any of that stuff okay like we still pay the same amount so there's not that much left over for people versus what's left over for a man and so the, the impact is massive in terms of how long it takes to save, to get ahead, to generate wealth. We've got a very interesting conundrum happening in Australia at the moment with the transfer from baby boomers to Gen X millennials as they pass away that's going to further entrench this, well, I inherited the house. I didn't even have to save for the deposit. So I think you can't have that and say to people, well, all you need to do is learn to save and invest and that'll be enough. Yes, that's what they can do personally, but I think anyone who's in a position like we are or are in the industry has to be committed to the systemic changes if we want to really improve lives, because there's only so much you'll get out of that.
0: Just a stat on gender, 32% of all women live in the 25% uh, of the poorest houses in Australia. Only 16% of women live in the wealthiest 25% of houses. So how do we solve for
1: this? So these conflicts we talked about earlier, so we can remove them. There are strategies we can employ to try and uh, reduce it so that at least it slows down the rate of that uh, inequality growing. And how can we turn it around, make it go the other way?
2: I'm really curious to hear from Nick about this. The comment that you made at the beginning, so I'm giving you time to think about how you're going to answer this. <laughs> that comment that you made at the beginning about we're taking accounting principles and transferring them into sustainability, because I think most of us would agree an existential threat for us is our planet right. surviving, right? So it's probably the most important one. How would you change those accounting principles, transferring them across? Is it that enough concept, or is there more to it than that?
3: You can't. I don't think you can transfer the accounting s- principles across from the accounting system into the non-financial information. What I'm really curious, and if I had to solve this, I, I wouldn't be here, in terms of I would have retired, is the integration between the non-financial and the financial information. Those are two different languages, non-financial being a physical language that we measure, scientists do it all the time, and the financial language that we orchestrate. And thing that gets me a bit about that thank you about that is we it's perceived as objective if anyone knows anything about accounting it's the least objective thing ever but because it's numbers we objectively believe in it we don't talk about the assumptions that go into building it etc so my honest view is how we could try to mirror nature create a system of accounting that's mirrored on nature and so we do it all the time in sciences we look at biomimicry and, and other ways of thinking. We're now starting to see some work being done in the mycelium, so mycelium being the communication tool for trees. So mycelium running under the ground and how it communicates with trees to be able to think about their resources so that they can balance each other. And trees actually collaborate with each other through the communication of mycelium. Accounting's communication, it's mycelium for an organization. It's part of every single part of your organization. It's just that it speaks in monoculture change the monoculture and you've got a really nice, integrated communication system. But to come back to that practical solution around wealth, to me it's about collaboration. Our whole society is built on individualism and profit maximization. What about collaboration? And we've got cultures that collaborate. We've got the oldest culture, living culture on earth here in Australia that work on collaboration. I'm really curious about how we could listen and how we could take some of those learnings and bring those into our way. So what we did practically in the business school is we created a really fluid space at the top. We run the only Masters of Indigenous Business Leadership program in Australia only for indigenous people, but allowing that space for them to have these conversations to take white ways, black ways, merge them together and create new ways. What's really interesting because it's a fluid space, it's impacting back into our mainstream business school. So unless we can bring those learnings and lessons together, to me, that's a really positive way to vision the future. It's a way to recreate systems, and it's a way to move to collaboration. It's that Australian thing, and it's the same in New Zealand. You, you mow your lawns, and everyone has a lawn mower on the street. I don't understand that, because you could be... You know those public strips? They do it in Bondi, I think. You could grow food on those strips, and then you don't need money to buy food to eat, because you can just get it off the street as you're walking home. So... What happens if we share lawnmowers and we don't all have one? Because we only use them once a week for those fanatics. And most of us do it every three months, right?
0: (laughs) We talk about siloed thinking and siloed problems. And there's traditionally not been a lot of instigation to bring the conversations together and talk about the effect of these multiple phenomena. A few people in the world think we're experiencing a polycrisis at the moment. It's four independently extreme phenomena colliding. Wealth inequality is one of them, political extremes, climate change. We've never really had this driver or this desperate need to talk about how everything is related and linked. So if we have a look at what's coming in the next 10 years for us, AI is going to be a big thing. Funnily enough, AI is going to give rise to the same kinds of problems that the finance industry does. It's going to wildly polarise the employment landscape It's going to bring issues that traditionally the poorer classes have faced. It's going to bring them well into the middle class and people are going to struggle to find jobs. So these issues that are perpetuated by this industry that's pretty shitty are going to start being perpetuated by other things as well. And talking about bringing together this conversation that was previously siloed, now is the time because we don't have a lot of time left. And I think if nothing else, we're arriving at a point where we're going to have a critical... Mass of conversation around how is this all linked and if we don't solve it, what happens?
2: Hard act to follow. I've got very small things. (laughs) So I mentioned at the beginning abolishing commissions. If I was going to trial one thing, that's the first thing I'd trial. Read my mind. Yeah, yay! Just because you pull out that conflict for people, you make it much easier for anyone who's selling financial products or giving the advice required to make those decisions, you pull their conflict out of it. You don't make them... ...sit in a situation where they've got to choose between... ...whether they're going to have enough money for... ...to pay the car or the house or whatever... ...versus the client getting the best versus a good outcome. And unfortunately the quality of advice review has not gone there. It's depressing. We've had this chance and we've cocked it up. Anyway. But that's the first thing I would do. I think the second thing... ...and I, did anyone go to the Compassionate Capitalism panel yesterday afternoon? I asked the question and it's so nice. I've asked it for the last three years. It was lovely to hear it said. I would change non-executive director responsibilities... And I would make it that whole, yes, survival of the company, but not at the expense of, like, the wording was used yesterday. So the idea that a non-executive director can lose their personal fortune, and it is their personal fortune because they're not an executive director, if they make a decision that means the shareholders aren't happy enough. And because the shareholders basically... We do vote differently, but mostly it's about the returns they're going to get, the dividends and the growth. If we can change the way non-executive directors see that risk, then I think we would be able to turn... ...turn corporate culture quickly. So, that's my two little levers I would do. So, that's systemic ones. On the personal responsibility side, I would try to make sure people had tools... ...to be able to make good decisions when they're in financial stress. Knowing that, and and if you've ever... This is that whole... And I grew up in a liberal voting household. If anyone who did, you probably grew up hearing that poor people make bad decisions. And, of course, that poverty brain research reverses that. People make bad decisions when they're poor... We all do. It's just where poor is for you on your brain. I would try to make sure there were enough tools available for people to make decisions. I think technology is going to help us there, especially when we consider there are only 750 financial counsellors in all of Australia. And financial counsellors are the people that, you know, one in eight adults lives below our poverty line, one in six kids. They're like the first stop and they're very heavily booked because there's so few of them. So I would focus as much energy as possible on helping those people make good decisions and that is, I think, I would love to see Money Smart, ASIC, all those groups heading that direction. I am not seeing it yet.
1: I was going to say ASIC has a website called Money Smart. Doesn't that solve everything?
2: It sucks. I'm so sad. It used to be amazing. They refuse to refer out. Mm. Refused to refer out. Conflict. Exactly. And I understand why because trying to manage those sources is very hard. And anyone who's done a Google search, like how do you define what's a sales funnel versus... What's real education, right? But that's very hard for the average person to do. They are managing their risk well. They are not delivering the service that they used to. It is sad. And everything they touch... I'm just going to have a bit of a bitch and moan about this for a minute. Because all of you are going to go, and I hear this all the time, we need to put it in the curriculum. It's been in the curriculum for 12 years. 2011 we put it in. Guess what's happened to our financial literacy? We're six months dumber. It is, we have done a terrible job of it. Everything that government touches with that stuff has not worked. We used to have that Money Smart program. In West Australia, when I first started my business, we didn't have it in the curriculum. 2010, I started. 2011, it came in. 22 schools. When they closed it down, it was down to eight schools. They're not the people to lead this. We need someone else to lead it. And unfortunately, it can't be people who sell financial products. Because they have a vested interest. They have all the money to do it. So we're in a bit of a conundrum there with where best rests. But I don't see the leadership that we need to actually progress that emerging yet. I could be ignorant. I am on the outside. There's probably wonderful stuff happening, but sorry, I don't see it.
1: Kane, what about alternative solutions to serving these products and delivering them to the
0: end customer? We need to change the way we sell or provide financial products. It's that simple. We need to change the monetization moment from the decision a person makes and that a company has an in- interest in influencing. We have these companies that are out there trying to influence, influence us through marketing, 30-second 30 sec- 30 ads about a product that's got an 80-page product disclosure statement that no one reads. We need to change that. We need to stop monetizing that because that's the conflict. Now, we've got some pretty strong views on how we do that. It's basically Costco's model. Charge to get in the door and offer cost price products so the company providing the products never has any vested interest in what you choose when you're in there. A safe place to do money, that removes the conflict. You pay a fair amount to get in the door and then there's another side of that. You have to change or cap the shareholders potential benefit from that company because otherwise you don't change this company from serving shareholder interests.
1: Right, so it sounds like you've got a subscription-based model, a curator sort of set of products, or at least that's the approach, which would mean that for people who are looking for fairly basic needs to be served, they're not overpaying for bells and whistles they're never going to use.
0: So we have this understanding that when we turn on the taps in our house, water comes out. Funnily enough, financial products are quite comparable to water. You measure a financial product in the exact same way or same terms, irrespective of where you buy it from or how you use it. It's the monetary benefit. When you turn a tap on, you go, hey, is the water clean? Can I drink this? Now, we understand as a society that it's not efficient or effective to have two, set of pi- two sets of pipes running the water to our houses. We have one set. So why can't we utilitise the provision of basic financial products, not monetise that, and provide them as a service, much like the, the water utilities do?
1: Yeah, right. So that sounds like almost bifurcating what's almost like a public asset, it sounds like. Is there a role for government, do you think, to play in
0: that? Or if not, uh, what's a better way of doing it? Well, it's interesting. If you do that well, you actually go above a regulation to the intent of regulation. You self-regulate. There's no interest in, in selling the financial product. It's just in providing the service, and you get paid to be an advocate for a customer. So when, when a company gets paid, their interests are perfectly aligned with the customer, which is the complete opposite of the industry at the moment. Is there a role for government? Look, we've had some regulators mention that what we're doing is quite interesting because if we succeed, we do their job and we should do away with some of the need for regulation. But definitely trying to regulate something that is rigged wildly in favour of 5% of the population, it's a hard battle. Gotcha. And spare a thought for the poor old
1: mortgage broker. If you do away with commissions, what do they do?
2: Pay it up front. I know this is horrible. We don't want to pay up front for anything, but effectively you do (laughs) pay for it anyway. Uh, So I think breaking that understanding of, well, I'm not paying anything. Yeah, yeah, it's priced in. Um, And getting people to understand that they're paying for a service. Mortgage brokers do an important service. Insurance brokers do an important service. Bankers do an important service. We need to divorce how that is done from how the client pays from it. I just, I think that's the hard bit.
1: Are um, you saying that burying it in a few basis points of my interest rate is not a good way of
2: doing it? (laughs) It's an excellent idea for the bank.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. And I think that opens up that that whole idea of a different way of approaching things. Uh, I've been teaching in MBA programs for a bit over a decade now. And year five maths is probably what I spend most of that time on in order to get to that sort of understanding of, oh, yeah, well, that makes a lot more sense. And I think what you're saying is there's a lot more transparency that comes from, yes, you are paying, it's X hundred dollars, and I found you the cheapest and most appropriate product in the market for your needs. And then basically both agreeing that's happened. That sounds like a slightly better way of uh, doing it, then I found you a product, I'm pretty sure it's good uh, and I'm not telling you how much they paid me or how much the other guys were offering me for the same service. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I wanted to give an opportunity to the audience to ask some questions as well. I don't have any rovers, so either you can shout or I can bring it to you. I to ask question of is capitalism ultimately threat to our future? So there's a book called Ministry of the Future where, um, you know, in India, you know, millions have died because of the heat wave and, you know,
4: LA, millions have
0: died because
1: of the world,
0: central bank Reserve banks and the is, what's in it for
2: us we can money Money's all we care about. Um, can I ask the question, why are we so focused on money So capitalism is still the best option that we've got that I'm aware of like it's still even for all it sucks it's just how we've executed it. I always think about it. it's good theory, crap execution and I think Nick pointed that out it was all based on this idea of we could have infinite growth. So how do we build in limits to capitalism? How do you find that balance between, okay, there's a great meme that I think there should be no billionaires, you should get to 999 million and then you get a trophy and a dog park named after you and the trophy says you won capitalism and then all the rest of the money goes out. So I think those kinds of limits Mm -hmm. applied to capitalism that that are integrated with the science that are, are possibly the answer. How you do that, I have no idea. Anyone want to add? Yeah.
3: Can I just make a comment on that? Nice question. We saw it run during the pandemic, <laughs> so for me, there was a really beautiful moment being in New Zealand when the because we're just Cinderella of kindness and stuff, but it was really nice for a Liberal government to basically implement a socialist environment. I thought was a really interesting time in history in terms of when you have a natural disaster and what you described in that futuring book, money is irrelevant. You can't eat it. You ca- it, you, it won't save you from being burnt. We're the only species that pays to be here. What I'm talking about is a future where money might not be so much of a thing that we're accounting for, but water will be, because that's our new currency into the future. Into the future that you're describing, it's about water.
2: Are you thinking of a UBI there? Universal basic income or
3: something like that? Yeah, 100%. 100%. So meeting people's basic needs, whatever that is, and then, and then moving on beyond that. Because to me, it's not going to be about money anymore. It's the resources that we will need to have to survive are not money. This is about behavioural change. I think that's a little bit why we're trying to use artists to take out literally to the public how destructive our profession is. Because when there's enough awareness... Things will change
0: there are also ways to pool capital with different intentions to the way we do it now and I think that's really important uh, it's built into the model of what we're doing and we want to pool capital long term over a 15 year period and give 95% of the control of that capital to the users of that system and I think if you change the intention of the pool of capital you can work within the current structures a little bit better all right thank you hey, great chat
4: this chat should happen a lot more nationally I feel there's an elephant in the room, and it's probably because of my professional experience in industry and supply chains and so on, but the the wealth inequality is corporate inequality. We're going to face it. There's huge pools of capital that are vacuumed up into corporate land, and then there's ring fencing that goes on that blocks small businesses from accessing that because they don't have the skills, and it's all based on risk mitigation strategies, and so I've seen that in practice. So I guess from your point of view, how do you get mountains of capital that's basically created a credit drain on the whole world back into the whole world without killing someone in a polite way? Like, that feels to me the biggest challenge. Like, how do you take 30% of that capital pool and just throw it back into the real economy so that communities can thrive from that and do all of the good, sustainable stuff we
0: want? So that's my question. I think that has to happen through and by using the largest industry as a tool. So at the moment, we've got the largest industry serving 5%. What if we shift that? What if we come up with a strategy to build an industry that services the same need, but for different purposes, and then over time start saying, hey, what can we now do with that industry? We've got these pools of capital because we've got this groundswell of people, maybe a billion people who are using one system that's made an older one obsolete, And all of a sudden you can say, hey, you get one vote irrespective of how much money you've got. You're part of this system. We all use this system. It's a utility, much like the health system. How do you want to run it? And if you give everyone one vote and stop giving people more votes based on how much money they've got, you might be able to change that. Mm.
2: I would do something around company law because we haven't got time to wait. (laughs) This always gets my back up when I see mining companies that fund an accelerator, but then they won't sign up the startup as their first customer. Like... Where's your skin in the game? And they say, "Oh no, we don't. We can't take that risk. Our shareholders would beat us over our head." Which is the only thing stopping this that ASX problem is what's in. Inhib- that's the excuse they fall back on anyway. That's what I would change. I would, and whether it's that non-executive director responsibility. I think you're
1: talking, I think, Section 187
2: of the Corps Act. I knew you were here for the, your ability to quote. Actually, wrong.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And just for background, that is about directors being legally required to act in the best interests of the company, full stop. Now, courts have historically lent towards that meaning, a best interest of the shareholders. But that's still, even without a change to the wording of it, I think it's about directors having courage to some degree. Because if the company's dead because we all died in 10 years, you didn't act in the best interest of it. So it is already in this country... Deliberately or otherwise, worded in such a way that it could be bent to, to other purposes. But, and remember, you, to go to jail, you have to be proven to have wantonly ignored it. deliberate.
2: Services. Yeah, it's got to be malicious and intentional.
1: But me accepting 2% less return on equity yeah. doesn't necessarily equal
2: that. The, inter- the difference with the non executive director, and I think this is the thing I didn't understand until I did non executive director training, was the non executive director risks their personal fortune. They, they risk their, their house and their family's livelihood. It's different from an executive's. And that has changed as well, depending on what each industry you're in and what kind of thing. But that, that – you're literally putting their personal financial situation and intention with making that decision. And, it, and, and like you say, it, it's to an element subjective –
1: This is true, but some Neds survive far worse things in the Financial Services Royal Commission. If, when questioned, why did you make that decision, rather than saying, I can't remember it was five years ago, I'm sure we said something, but the minutes were really vague because I don't want to go to jail, compared to the ones that said, actually, there was a sentence about this, we read this report, based on the information of the day, this was the decision that we made. And even though it might not have led to the most profitable outcome, that was actually fine. So I think it's about that community also having courage to say, well, yes, there are risks involved, but I'm doing this because it's the right thing, and it's the in, in fact, the best thing for that company in
0: the long run.
2: A great question and a really important... It is an elephant in the room. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Kane. were you going to say something? Or I was what? just going to say it's so hard for companies that are for-profit and in existence already to change that. Those obligations of directors, it doesn't really matter how you look at them. If your company is for-profit at its core in its constitution, those are your obligations, all your voting rights relate to all of those issues, then it's pretty hard to change, if not virtually impossible. You have to build it into the corporate governance, the structure, the constitution of your company on day one. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, that came up in the humanitarian capital
1: conversation yesterday. Far easier to build that in the constitution of the company earlier, because even if you flog it to other shareholders or give the whole thing to charity down the track, if it's already built in and you've got a what's, a, what's called a mission lock worded in there, then it has to be undone otherwise. So that means that the better chance the organisation will carry on that way. Sarah at the front.
4: Just on that point where you were saying there about new companies doing it, I totally agree, but that's a very slow approach. Like, if I look down here, I just looked down here, Commonwealth Bank is here, right, which is an enormous bank. Um, Like, if we're talking about faster change, we have to see it at companies like this because if just new companies start to do it, most of them aren't going to make it, and the ones that do are probably going to take 10 years before they actually become even reasonably large and then can affect the change. Like, that's where I want to see the change.
1: Yeah, right, so from the, the top end. The challenge with that, they could do it start small, at least give 1% or something. 1% of a trillion dollars is still a fair okay, whack of money.
4: I see Commonwealth Bank join the 1% pledge. Is anyone from Commonwealth Bank here? This would be amazing, though, <laughs> right? This would be a very brave step, and not only a brave step, but I feel like it would be um, like like leading. And then I mm. just could look at it and be like, hey, that's, you know, that's great. And then maybe Westpac does, and then maybe NAV does, and kind of the waterfall approach. I just right. feel like, I, I certainly believe that finance is the most powerful tool we have for social and climate. And
2: we're talking about, you know, the climate issue has a really short deadline. Mm. I mean, we have to fix the inequality. Right. We have deadline. And how are we going to make it a shorter deadline when we can't even look at companies like criminal banks? It's have to, like, they're not going to do it because they liked it, it's and they want to feel like good humans? There's an... Ex- I would go... Psychological. I would go government in first. Yeah. Oh, okay, here we go. I would go government first.
0: Okay, no, I, I would argue there's an example in the room. You said it has to happen at that top end of, of town. UpBank is about to overtake in the youth market, the Commonwealth Bank, in terms of customer numbers, right? Now, what if UpBank... When did you launch, Dom? How, how many years ago? 2018. What if... An, an up bank or up bank equivalent launched with a different motivation or a different intention. They've still acquired 700,000, nearly a million customers. It's still
4: going to take decades. I'm sorry,
0: but... Uh, no, absolutely, but Up has proven that with the right messaging to your customer, you can acquire it. Now, what if we start having more social impact ventures that are of that magnitude and scale? Maybe we can change it from the ground up still.
4: Can I jump in? For me, as There's no other
2: way. Yep. And then you're 13 IQ points dumber. I always wonder why investors want dumber founders. Why would you do that? Well, if I go to the bank, and they say, guess what? We've got one percent pool that we can just throw at anything, and let's just let's, let's just back
4: it. Like this place would be packed. Right. Right. This is the innovation that the world is saying we're not to turn to sustainability. We'll throw the money back into that,
0: and just let's see what. happens. Which is the model that the Atlassian Foundation is pursuing at the moment. Yeah.
4: okay let's throw capital right at these problems and stop letting it be poor and being in this profit ring fencing
1: crap and actually just make the difference right Right. is it that Not necessarily. I'll wind up that question and then I'm going to do one last thing and then please bring that energy to some private conversations because this is awesome and why we're here. The issue is probably with the shareholder base. If the shareholders could vote that, yes, I want to be part of the 1% and this is where the big super funds and some others really have large uh, institutional block holdings. And if they themselves have ultimate holders who want that, that will drive that change. So you might actually, what terrifies the director is, oh, what if the shareholders crucify me for saying this? Um, But that won't happen if the shareholders actually want that themselves. So I think that's what may, actually bring that change faster. And that means having courage to put it to an AGM and actually test it rather than just assume that they'd never go for it. So right before I let our panel go, you've got 10 seconds each. What's one thing that people can take out of this? What's the most powerful thing that they can do to help drive the change to to solve this problem? I'll start with you, Lacey.
2: I'm just going to ask you all to remember it's not that poor people make bad decisions. It's that we all make bad decisions when we feel poor. So have some empathy when you see people make those bad decisions.
0: Thank you. If we don't get the world's largest industry working for the people it serves, we're screwed. Collaborate in all you do, I think. Awesome.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. We've got 20 seconds left, but uh, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks to our panel, and uh, we'll be around to uh, have any further conversations. Thank you so much.
0: And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality, one of humanity's greatest threats today.